0: As uh, so we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark we 're on part 10 this week and we'll be in uh, chapter 3 verses 13 to 19. A couple of the guys are handing out some of the outlines for the uh, the, the lesson today so just keep your hand up and they 'll find you and then uh, meanwhile let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and open up in prayer and we 'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you Lord so much for your love for us we thank you Lord for um, Your word, I pray that as we open it together, we would learn and we'd grow and grow closer to you and understanding uh, the Lord and his calling as we look at the disciples today and the calling that he gave to them. I pray that we would respond um, as the spirit leads, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we'll we'll continue in Mark here, kind of starting a new series, if you will, within the gospel of Mark. Um, We're calling it A House Divided house divided. That main theme will come out, Lord willing, next week, but what we'll talk about today gets everything set in motion for that issue of a divided house. Friends, foes, or family. I want us to look at, specifically today, we'll be looking at what we're calling Jesus' friends, his 12 disciples. That will be the main topic of what we're going to look at. I think it'll take pretty much the whole time. But as we um, think about this, I, w- I want you to consider um, the point of view of Jesus in this and how um, what happened to him, what was said about him, and the people he was surrounded with affected him. Uh, we think of him as God, as we should. He is God. Uh, but he was also fully man and so was subject to all of the relationship. Issues that you and I face. Of course, he was sinless in that. That's the difference, and that's a big difference. Um, But he still felt the pressure. Uh, He also felt the joys of friendship. When friends become so close, they feel like family. We're going to see that, Lord willing, uh, next week, more brought out. But this kind of sets the tone. What happens when family becomes distant, and they feel like less than friends? What about when those closest to us become our enemies? even those that we would consider our family become our foe. And so that's, that's the kinds of things we're going to be looking at as we look at this next portion of the Gospel of Mark. So a house divided. First of all, we're going to look at Jesus' friends. And as I said, we're <clears throat> excuse me going to be covering the 12 disciples, getting to know them as much as we can from Scripture. Some of them we know a bit about, others we know almost nothing about, which I think is on purpose, and we'll get to that, hopefully, Lord willing, at the end here. But let's review a little bit from last week. We looked at the calling, and we see that in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. I won't read these verses again, but we found last week that there were four things that Jesus called the disciples to do. It was a fourfold calling. First of all, they called, he called them to be with him. He called them to preach. He called them to have power over sickness and to power over Satan. All the things that Jesus was doing. And so that is the, really the, the basic understanding of a disciple is someone that follows after, that imitates the one they are following. And so Jesus was calling them. But remember, this call was not just a job description. It was an empowerment. He sent them out in his power to do these things. If he wouldn't have given them the power to preach, the the power to uh, heal, the power to cast out demons, could they have accomplished those things? No, it's always in the power of the Lord. And so today, we're going to look specifically at these 12 men, these 12 called ones that he called to be his disciples and even more specifically his apostles, his representatives uh, to the world. Um, And so let's look at this, and we'll we'll pick it up in Mark 3, verse 16. Here's the list that Mark gives us. We'll read through it, and then we'll break these down. Uh, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, verse 17. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. They went into a house. Just this little line at the end, and I don't want to make more of it than we need to, but you can see the unity of this group. These are his friends that are going to become closer to him than his own family, as we're going to see Uh, As this passage unfolds, Uh, in his book called Twelve Ordinary Men, uh, author and pastor John MacArthur explains to us a little bit of the hierarchy, if you will, of the disciples, the arrangement that he had, uh, that he made with them. I know the font's a little small. I will read it, uh, and then I'll show you a chart that kind of helps understand how the twelve were arranged. Uh, MacArthur writes, the twelve are then arranged in three groups of four. Group one always has Peter at the head of the list, and, and that group always includes Andrew, James, and John. Group two always features Philip first and includes Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Group three is always led by James, the son of Alphaeus, and it includes Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, called Thaddeus and Mark, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus and Matthew, and finally Judas Iscariot. Uh, he, Judas is omitted from the list in Acts 1 because he was already dead by then. In the three lists where Judas' name is included, it always appears last every time, along with a remark identifying him as the traitor. The three names at the head of each group seem to have been the group leaders. The three groups always appear in the same order. First Peter's group, then the group led by Philip, then the group headed by James. And so we often think of just the 12. We, we, I think if you've been reading the word at all, you see Peter as kind of the leader. But there was also some other smaller group leaders within the disciples. So Jesus kind of arranged them and uh, probably according to some of their natural abilities and strengths and, and uh, abilities to lead, uh, these, these men were uh, leaders within the groups. So this chart is also from uh, that same book, uh, so we see uh, the, the lists are given four times in, in the Bible. We find them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. Peter is always number one, always first. And then his group, Andrew, James, and John. And then you can see Philip is always the fifth one listed. And his group, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Um, and then again, once after Philip, sometimes the names are rearranged in order but Philip always takes that leadership role in the fifth spot. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, um, always listed there as the leader of that third group, which includes Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. So let's look at these 12 men and the time we have left. Hopefully we can get through all of these guys and just try to get an understanding. Um, So there in Mark 3.16, we'll start with peter or simon and that's simon really is his given name in fact his whole life people had no one had called him peter everyone had called him simon that was his given name by his parents that's who everyone knew him as simon um and so but we see here in verse 16 that the name peter came from christ christ gives him this this name of peter which is an interesting choice um, <clears throat> Uh, as we'll see as we go through this. Uh, Peter, along with Andrew, his brother, was a fisherman. Peter was the natural leader and spokesman for the group. Um, We know he was the leader not only because his name always appears first on the list, but also because of his actions and his um, words and things that he did uh, from the accounts in the Gospels and in Acts. In the parallel passage in Matthew 10, verse 2, Notice that Matthew uses a word before he lists Simon. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Um, The word first there in the Greek is protos, which is not a chronological word. It is instead a word that means chief or leader. And so Matthew helps us understand that, yes, he is indeed the leader of the 12 underneath Christ, of course, His name is always listed first. Peter was impulsive and headstrong, often speaking before thinking, but Jesus continued to give him opportunities to lead despite his failures. We did not plan this, but so much of what was said in this morning's message ties in to the study of these men. God using the weak things of the world to confound the strong, the foolish to confound the wise. We're gonna see that as we look at this list of men who were by the world's standard nobodies, yet Christ calls them and does amazing things through them. Getting back to Peter, he was often the one that spoke up to say the things that the others were probably thinking but didn't want to say. They were too afraid to say it. Peter was brash that way. Um, remember, he was one that spoke up at the Mount of Transfiguration, which we'll get to in the study of Mark. He didn't know what to say, so he thought something needed to be said. Unfortunately, out it came. It was Peter, though, who made the messianic confession at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Remember, it was Peter that spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, It was Peter who swung his sword to defend Jesus in the garden. Before that, though, it was Peter who walked on water. Not, Not any of the other disciples would step out of that boat. Peter, though, had the faith to do it. So in a sense, that impulsivity, that brashness was a weakness and yet also a strength, and Jesus continued to develop that in him. So he swung his sword to defend Jesus in the garden, but then it was him that denied the Lord and went away weeping in shame. And of course, it was Peter then that the Lord restored right there on the shores of Galilee where he had been called when Jesus said, follow me some three years previous. Peter would later pen two epistles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, from which we gain much truth and encouragement for our Christian walk today. Peter's given name was Simon, but Jesus gave him this other name, Peter, I believe to tell him what kind of person he should be. Uh, That word Peter there is the word Petros, which means stone. Sometimes the word Cephas you'll read there in Scripture, that is the Aramaic equivalent. Jesus needed Peter to stop living like an unstable, impulsive man and start living like a stone, resolute and dependable. And so he gives him this name, not because he fit it yet, but because he needed to grow into it. And so uh, he calls him Peter. And we see that he did grow into it, didn't he? As we progress through the storyline, as we look at what happened in the book of Acts, Who's the one standing up and preaching right from the start and defending the uh, messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth? Who's the one that's, that's calling people to believe, calling Israel to turn back to the Lord? It's Peter. And so we see God using him mightily. Was he perfect? No, he wasn't. He, none of us are. And yet uh, we see God using this impulsive, headstrong man to do amazing things for the Lord Uh, Let's look at the next two together, James and John, as as Mark gives us the list. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So these brothers are listed next. Now, we know that Andrew was Peter's brother, and oftentimes, in the other accounts, Andrew is listed before these men because he was Peter's brother. Uh, But Mark decides to give us Um, James and John first and we'll see the reason for that in a moment but these men the sons of thunder these brothers are listed next they were fishermen just like Peter and Andrew were in fact they had probably known one another for a long time had possibly even come to into uh, business ventures together Uh, James and John's father Zebedee was likely a man of some prestige in the community And his business, his fishing business, was large enough and successful enough to hire multiple servants. We see that in in one of the accounts that the brothers leave their father in the boat with the servants. And so um, we see that his business was successful. James was the older of the two and the one we know the least about between James and John. Uh, We don't really see James acting alone very often. We don't get a lot of James quotes like we do Peter and even John. Uh, we often see him with uh, his brother or with one of the other disciples. The exception to this is when James is martyred in Acts 12, 1 and 2. It says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so we see him dying the martyr's death here at the hands of Herod. Now, John, on the other hand, uh, was uh, much has much more material and is the apostle who penned not only the Gospel of John, but also the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John along with the epic apocalyptic treatise, the book of Revelation. Uh, John is called by himself, self-named, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, did Jesus love just John or did he love all 12? All 12, right? Um, but John just wants to, uh, I guess, enjoy and celebrate God's love for him. And so he's, he always um, refers to himself in, in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see this in John 21, 7. Uh, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so this is, of course, when they're out in the boat right before um, the Lord restores Peter there on the shores after his resurrection. John, as I stated, never names himself in his gospel. Always references himself in relation to Jesus. He never self-promotes. He understands that it's his relationship with Christ that has the greatest impact on the on the people that will be reading what he's writing. Uh, like Peter, James, and John were given this nickname, sons of thunder it doesn't tell us exactly why but i think we read between some of the lines we can see that some of it could have been their reference uh, a reference to their tendency to be rather boisterous men or to even have a hot temper and so we see in mark 9 38 uh, john answered jesus saying teacher we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us Just an overzealous kind of hot-headed attitude that we see there um, out of the Apostle John. In Luke 9.54, we see a little bit bigger picture of this. When his disciples James and John saw this, they saw something negative being, being done. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? they were ready for battle at a moment's notice. These these guys were on fire, and of course, we want to be on fire for the Lord, don't we? Uh, but these guys were ready for even violence. They're, they're thinking back to when Elijah and even Elisha calls down fire um, from heaven and destroys uh, the enemies. And they're thinking, man, we got to do it. Call, let us do it, Lord. Let us call down fire uh, from heaven. This, this is their attitude, um, and, and of course, Jesus rebukes that. But he continues, just like with Peter, to use this, these men, even in their weakness, as we even looked at this morning, uh, to uh, be a strength for him. Peter, James, and John are what we would call the inner circle amongst the 12 disciples. These three had the closest relationship with Jesus. They were the inner circle. They were set apart from the others. It was these three that were present when Jairus' daughter would be raised from the dead. In Mark 5:37, which we will get to, Lord willing, he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Also on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is these three men out of the 12 that Jesus calls to accompany him, up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. If you remember, as they're coming down, what does Jesus tell them? Don't say anything to anyone until, until later, until after I have uh, risen, basically. He says, keep this between you three. Don't tell the other, uh, the other disciples about it. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, in Jesus' darkest hour here on earth, It is Peter, James, and John. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Of course, they weren't a big help uh, to him. Like so many of us in our weakness and our frailty, uh, they fell asleep instead of praying, but uh, he wanted them there with him. Let's move on to the next disciple then, Andrew. Uh, We see him next there in Mark 3.18. His name comes after uh, those three. And I believe, again, that's why Mark listed those three uh, before Andrew to help us uh, get, a, get that grasp of the circle, that inner circle of three that uh, Jesus called in close to him. Uh, we already stated Andrew was the brother and business part, partner of Peter in their fishing uh, business together. Andrew, though, was a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Christ, he would be the one to introduce Peter to Jesus. In John 141, speaking of Andrew, it says he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which Mark t- or John tells us, which is translated, uh, the Christ. Now we, we've talked about Peter and his impulsive, hot-headed, prone-to-be-out-in-front type of personality. Uh, no one would have known this better than Andrew, his brother. He knew full well that if Peter was part of a group, he would find a way to lead. It was his nature to do this. Yet Andrew brings him along anyway. I think this is an indication of Andrew's humbleness. He was willing to bring his much stronger-headed brother along because there was something higher at stake than who was going to be in, in charge, if you will. He was willing to step aside and allow someone else to lead. This is an example of someone with a humble heart. Um, but unlike Peter, and when Andrew speaks in the Bible, the recorded words we have of Andrew, he always seems to say the right thing. Um, of course, that doesn't mean he always did say the right thing. But as far as what the Holy Spirit wanted us to see of Andrew's character, we see that when he speaks, it's often uh, the, the right thing or at least something that leads uh, to the right thing, there's there's really not any dishonor given to Andrew's words. Um, like I said, he's he was just a man. Obviously, he made errors. He misspoke at times. Um, the disciples, uh, on a couple of occasions, argued about who was the greatest. If you remember, and I'm sure Andrew was a part of that. He wasn't perfect, uh, but but Andrew had some highlights in in the gospel accounts. Um, It was Andrew that would bring the boys' lunch to Jesus when the 5,000 were fed. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So it was Andrew bringing. He had a a habit, really, of bringing people to Christ. Uh, We see that it's kind of a pattern in in Andrew's life um, that he did that. Uh, He often worked in the background uh, in, in order to do this. He brought Peter to Christ. He brought the boy with his lunch, and then this group of, of Greeks want to come and see Jesus in John 12, 20 through 22. There were certain Greeks among those who had came to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. So we're going to talk about Philip in a moment, but Philip is a Greek name. And, of course, Philip was a Jewish man, so he had a Jewish name. The Bible never gives it to us. Uh, he's only known by his Greek name, and so it makes sense that these Greek, Individuals would come to Philip as a name they recognized and uh, they had thought maybe some camaraderie there, but notice that uh, they say to Philip, we wish to see Jesus, but notice what does Philip do? Philip came and told Andrew. I think by now the inner circle of three was perhaps beginning to be established and Philip wanted to run this by another person, someone that he knew uh, was close to the Lord and in turn, Andrew and Philip told uh, Jesus. And so uh, there could possibly be more said about Andrew, but we're going to keep moving on here as we leave the, the, uh, the, the first group of four. And now we come to the second group here. And we have this individual, Philip, who we just mentioned. We see him listed next in verse 18 of Mark 3. Um, he's always given that fifth place on the roster. He's always given that position of leadership of that second group of uh, four uh, out of the three groups. Um, like Andrew, Philip was also a former disciple of John the Baptist. So uh, that could have been also a reason why we see Philip and Andrew at t- together at times. Uh, they, they likely knew one another from those days, and now they're together following Jesus. Um, it's likely that he was a fisherman. Um, we're not given his, his occupation, though. Um, although he was from Bethsaida, which is the same town... Uh, as the two sets of brothers were originally from. So originally, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were from Bethsaida, but they moved to Capernaum uh, when they established their uh, fishing business. And of course, uh, that's where Jesus began to establish much of his ministry in the region of Galilee. So Philip probably knew these guys as well. Um, again, Philip, again, is a Greek name. Um, and we, we know that he knew Andrew, but we also often see Philip in the company of another man named Nathanael who we'll get to in a moment they were likely close friends even before meeting Jesus Um, it says in verse 45 of John chapter 1 that Philip went and found Nathanael and said to him something very similar to what Andrew said to Peter when he brought Peter to Jesus he said we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph so um, again uh, he's uh, wanting to bring others to Christ, which is a theme here uh, in many of these cases. Uh, and so um, he, brings G- he brings them to uh, Jesus. And Nathanael protests, if you remember, and we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, of course it's Philip that says these um, famous words, come and see, come and see, um, which is a call that, that we can uh, utilize as we speak to people about Christ. Come and see what Jesus has done in my life how he's transformed me. And so that was the call. Um, Philip was kind of an analyst of the group. He often wondered how things would get done. He was looking at things from a logical perspective. How are we going to get this done with what we have and how is this all going to work out? Um, remember, he sees the thousands of people coming, and uh, Jesus does rather, and he, he's, he asked Philip this question, which is, I think, somewhat key. Uh, he's, he's trying to grow Philip's Um, analytical side, but also his faith, Uh, because sometimes faith has to abandon uh, the the analyzing of every fact. So in John 6, 5, and 6, Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Test time, testing time for Philip. Uh, Again, in verse 6, it tells us, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew uh, what he would do. Uh, So Philip Um, answers there in verse 7, well, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. He had already done the math. He had already done the calculations in his mind. He said, Lord, um, maybe this is what they had in their money bag. Maybe they had about 200 denarii, or maybe he was just saying that's such an exorbitant amount. Uh, So Philip would need to grow in his faith. He would need to grow in his faith in the Lord. Uh, In the upper room at the Last Supper, Philip once again showed his struggling faith uh, remember in John 14, verse 8, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Um, and so <laughs> Jesus is almost uh, kind of really uh, rebukes him. His answer is just kind of heavy in rebuke. Um, and so he, once again, is calling Philip, I need you to grow in your faith, Philip. Remember the things that I taught you. He said, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? We've been talking about this for three years, Philip. I need you to listen. I need you to grow in your faith. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? We've been over this a number of times. And so he kind of chides him a little and encourages him, though, to understand, hey, we've been through this. I, I need you to grow. I need you to stop analyzing things and listen with ears to hear. Listen with faith. Next, we have Nathaniel, who we mentioned already. Um, And so, uh, Nathaniel's uh, name here listed um, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, otherwise known as Nathaniel. So, we're calling him Nathaniel, but really, um, uh, Mark's account gives him the name Bartholomew. Um, He's called different things in in different um, Gospels. Uh, It doesn't say that Jesus gave him one of these names like some of the others. Uh, just that he could have been called by these different names. Um, this word Bartholomew is um, the word Bar it usually means son of. So, um, for example, the man that was blind that Jesus healed, Bar Timaeus, was son of Timaeus. So Bartholomew, bar Ptolemy means son of Ptolemy That was his father's name. So it could have been that his name was Nathaniel, son of Ptolemy. Um, Nathaniel, the name means God has given, God has given. Uh, he was from the town of Cana where Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine. Uh, Bartholomew was one that studied the scriptures. This man had a zeal for biblical accuracy. Remember, as we stated, uh, Philip comes to him, says, we have found him, notice how he describes him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Remember, uh, Philip says to Nathaniel, remember, we've been, we were just talking about this. We were just reading this. We, we've been waiting. We've, we've read the scrolls. We've studied the word. Everything that we've studied together is now coming to pass. And he calls him Jesus of Nazareth here. And of course, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth had a horrible uh, uh, reputation, if you will, And, of course, we know Philip's response was just, you're just going to have to come and see this for yourself. But his question does expose a root of bigotry, a root of prejudice in his heart. Uh, Cana was not very far from Nazareth geographically. And so uh, Bartholomew apparently harbored feelings of disgust, like many people did at this time, for that town of Nazareth. So, like the other men, uh, he had some maturing to do. He had some growing to do, but Jesus called him anyway, just like he calls us. He calls us out of our immaturity, and he calls us to grow in Christ, and that's what he's doing with all of these men. Um, Jesus, though, does make a high commendation of Bartholomew, uh, also called Nathanael. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. What a high calling or or commendation from the Lord. Um, Really... Bartholomew, he never hid his thoughts. He was not a deceitful man. He was kind of one of those people that's just kind of an open book. He, he's, whatever he's thinking, it's probably going to get said. Um, he, he's going to let you know what he thinks. But then Jesus reveals his deity to this man. And I love the immediacy with which he believes based on Jesus' testimony. Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? They've never met before. They've never physically met. And Jesus answered him and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. We've been talking about some of the religious leaders, the experts in the law that Jesus is usually at odds with. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. These men had spent their whole lives studying the Word. But they weren't getting it right. They weren't understanding what they were reading. They had corrupted their faith system. They had corrupted the Judaism and the law and the truth of God's Word. And so when Jesus came on the scene, these men that were the most learned, they were the teachers of Israel, could not see Jesus for who he was. So Jesus doesn't go to them. He goes to these men. He goes to the men with really no reputation to speak of. Why does Jesus go to them? Because they had ears to hear. They had eyes to see. They saw the scripture for what it really was. And so when they read in the Old Testament Jesus says the Old Testament, that's not where you're getting the life from. He says to the Pharisees at one point, you search the scriptures because you think that's where you're getting your life, but it's the scriptures that speak of me. I'm the source of life. That's what he's telling them. These men had a greater understanding of who to look for. They knew what to watch for when it came to Messiah. They were watching for Messiah. Of course, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were looking for Messiah. They were looking for the conquering king, though not the suffering servant. They were looking for Rome to get overthrown. And honestly, some of the, really the disciples were as well. But they had a more open mind. They had a more uh, faith in their their hearts to believe. They read the scriptures. They knew what they were looking for. And if someone could say to this man, Nathaniel or Bartholomew, in Mark's uh, uh, passage, that I saw you, and first of all, I know you, and I saw you when, when I wasn't within eyesight of you. That was enough. That was enough for him to say, this is him. This is the Christ. This is the son of God. This is my king. And immediately puts his faith in Christ. Let's move on to a couple of more, more of these men. Uh, Matthew and Thomas. We'll get them together. Uh, Matthew's other name, of course, Levi. Uh, And it's interesting, at the beginning of Mark, we looked at the call of Levi, if you remember, at his tax booth. Um, But here he lists him as Matthew. And then, of course, Thomas being the other one. So we covered Matthew previously. Remember, he's sitting at his customs tax booth as a customs tax collector there in Capernaum. And Jesus walks by his booth. And what does he say to him? Follow me, right? Immediately, Levi, or Matthew, gets up. He leaves everything behind. He was despised, remember, by his fellow Jews. And I wonder what the tension was within the group of disciples when he was brought on board. Um, Because these guys knew him as this tax collector. Uh, He was rejected by almost everyone. Any any, uh, self-respecting Jew would have wanted nothing to do with Matthew. Uh, Yet Jesus calls him. And I believe that he, like Bartholomew, was watching for the Messiah. He was waiting to see what would happen. Uh, Matthew's choice to follow Jesus, remember, was irreversible. And what I mean by that is the, the tax booths were franchised. They were purchased as franchises, and they went to the highest bidder. And so when he walked away from his booth, there was no going back to the booth. There was no going back to collecting taxes anymore. He would have had to wait and wait and wait for another franchise to open in hopes of being the highest bidder to purchase it. Because I'm sure, I believe in, uh, in the reading I did, as soon as he walked away, that booth would have been quickly snatched up by the next uh, money-hungry piranha, if you will, that wanted uh, to get that money. But Matthew doesn't look back. He's ready to follow. Thomas, he's well-known, even outside the church. What's, what's his moniker? Doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas, because he um, wouldn't believe the other eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after his resurrection. Um, and so certainly he was a doubter, but we also see that uh, Thomas struggled. Uh, he, he was kind of a pessimist. He struggled with pessimism. He was a glass-half-empty kind of guy. And we see that in different places throughout, uh, throughout the Scriptures, in uh, John 11 is one of the most uh, interesting accounts of this. So um, to set up what's going on here, um, Jesus tells the disciples, we're going to go back to this area of Bethany. This was right before Lazarus is raised from the dead. Remember, Jesus remains. He lingers for two or three days after the report that Lazarus, the, the person who he loves, is sick. Jesus waits for him literally to die because he's going to go raise him from the dead. That's his plan, uh, to bring glory to God and to authenticate his position as Messiah. And so he waits. Uh, the problem with Bethany wasn't just that ta- or that uh, uh, Lazarus had died, but there was also a danger in the area because the Jewish leaders were looking to kill Jesus. They wanted to stone him to death. They wanted to bring him uh, to justice, if you will, for what they saw as his crimes And they had a a large following there. And so Jesus leaves because of that. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. And so he had to kind of work around within the human uh, experience that way. But he tells the disciples, hey, we're going to go back into the same region where they just threatened my life. We're going to go back in. I have a plan. I have a mission. And let's go. We're all going to go back to Bethany. Oh, Lord, you mean the place where they just threatened to kill you? Yes, that's where we're going. And so this is Thomas's response. And it's, in a sense, it's negative, but in another sense, it's full of faith. Uh, Thomas, who is called the twin, which tells us that he had a twin brother or sister. We're never told the name of that person. We don't know who that was. Uh, Didymus is the, uh, the other word for twin. He says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He saw this ending in tragedy. That was his point of view. This is going to end really bad. This is going to be a disaster. Jesus is going to die. But look what he's saying here. Guys, it's better to die with Jesus than to live without him. Thomas couldn't imagine life without his Jesus. He was, yes, somewhat negative. Yes, somewhat of a pessimist. But he was completely devoted to Christ he couldn't imagine being separated from Jesus. We see this again in the upper room. In John 14, verse 5, Jesus tells them, I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Much, much less, how are we getting, We don't even know where you're going. We, how are we ever even going to find the way? We don't even know our destination. We don't know your destination. Lord, I can't imagine being separate." from you. I can't imagine being apart from you. That's Thomas's attitude. You can't imagine living apart from Jesus. But I'm so glad that Thomas asked the question because John 14:5 sets up John 14:6. Jesus said to him, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Jesus said this that we use constantly when we're sharing the gospel. This is put on cards. It's put in artwork. This is one of the most quoted statements of Christ was an answer to a man that was somewhat pessimistic but totally sold out for Christ. And I'm so thankful that we have this written in our Bibles. Think of how often we have used this. As we draw to a close, um, we are going to Uh, look at the last three, Lord willing, we will pick this up next week because we want to get done on time this morning. But we'll be looking at these three last men together. James the Less. We'll look at what, what does that mean, James the Less? Uh, We'll look at Thaddeus. He was the disciple with three names. And then, of course, uh, Simon the Canaanite. And we will finish with uh, Judas Iscariot as well. So we've got four more to go. Um, So, again, we, we looked this morning and, and I did not plan it this way and Pastor Rich didn't plan it this way. The verses that he used and the theme of being weak yet being strong in, in Christ, that could not be a better explanation or definition of these 12 men. Not one of them was strong in the world's standards. They were roughnecks, They were despised tax collectors. They were nobodies. They came out of nowhere. No one knew these men. And and we're going to look at these last several disciples. We almost know nothing about them. And I think it's on purpose. To show us God uses the weak. He uses those that are unknown. He uses nobodies to accomplish his greatest Uh, ministry goals. He uses the weakest to accomplish the greatest things. And if we take nothing else away from this uh, study of the 12, that's something we need to take away. And so God has not called us to be his apostles, but he has called us to be his disciples. He has called us to preach in whatever way that God has given us uh, a platform to preach, uh, whether it be through actual preaching or through Ministry uh, among in, in relationships that we have with people we know, with people that we meet. You say, and this was said this morning, and again, it just the Lord just works these things out. We often view ourselves as weak. And I don't have this, and I don't have this ability, and I don't have this strength. Neither did these 12 men. They had nothing that the world would say would make a good follower of a rabbi back in first century Judaism. They had nothing. And so we look at what God did through them, and we can say, well, I guess God can maybe do something through us as well. So be encouraged in that, and uh, we'll look forward to picking this up next week. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Lord, I thank you so much that you use weak people. You use us in our weakness, Lord. And, and when we are out of our own strength, that is when your strength really begins to flow. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us just like you helped these men. Uh, They had weaknesses, they had impulsive attitudes, they had uh, anger problems, they had uh, doubts, they had pessimism, they were over-analytical, they had a lack of faith, yet you kept calling them, you kept using them, you kept growing them. So please, Lord, help us to continue to submit to your authority in our lives, and may we continue to grow in Christ as your disciples, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.